Maybe I should wear a hat. I think your hair looks good. Oh, thank you. I, I'm very like, I'm very self-conscious about it slicked back like this. I feel like I look like a, a chuggy lesbian, but you know. No way. <laughs> but as we discussed, chuggy is, chuggy is relative, so. Yeah, chuggy is relative and also like reclaim chugginess. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like the, okay, sorry, but like, I feel like the word chuggy is fucking chuggy. Like, why did you come up with such a shit word? It's like, a pretty bad word. It's awful. Like, it just feels bad in the mouth. Chuggy. 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 Oh, hey. Hello. <laughs> hey, how are you? Are we talking about chuggy? That works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we had some questions for you as it relates to uh, your oh, writing. <laughs> oh, boy. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, by the way. I yeah. Know it's kind of like a weird day. Like, yeah. Like, talk in real life and just not. On, yeah, totally. On our, yeah, I'm happy to be here. home. Yeah. <laughs> that help me yeah yeah i know all right shall we do it let's do it let's do it because, because i'm a hot i'm a hot girl. i do hot shit hot shit hot shit because i'm a hot Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Hot Girl Agenda. I am your shortest co-host, uh, Yessie, joined by my uh, much taller, much more statuesque uh, co-host, Rara. Rara, what's up? Hey, what's up? Yes, it was very cute uh, that we met and I was like, ah! oh my God, uh, Yessie is as small and adorable and makes me feel like a gigantic uh, no, Amazonian. <laughs> <laughs> when you were coming up my driveway, or I mean my uh, walkway in your high-waisted pants, you just looked so beautiful. I was like, oh my God, Rara is more beautiful in person than oh, like, geez. I was just like, what? So that was the first time we met, everybody. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. That was my airport outfit, by the way. What? Like high-waisted, high, high wide-leg pants, big stompy boots. Top. Yeah. You know, the, the airport's depressing. You might as well like make it cute, you know? Just make it less depressing for everybody. Mm. So it looks mm. a little cute at the airport. You know, yes, what, what's stopping you? Uh, um, yeah, we have a really great episode today because mm-hmm. we have an awesome, awesome guest. Yessie, who do we have on today? We are so lucky, so excited to have the uh, James Beard Award-nominated writer, memoirist, bad bitch, uh, Rax <laughs> King. Rax, what's up? Hi, I just, I feel like I might actually be shorter than you, Yessie. So if that makes <laughs> How, you, feel, uh, maybe not, I don't know. Okay, well, we'll we'll add heights in our Patreon, so that's exclusive content. If you would like to get our heights, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash hotgirlagenda. But yeah, so um, we're so happy to have you here. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. I'm doing my little... I guess the way my friend Calvin describes it is I'm currently running for mayor of Please Buy My Book. So <laughs> this is one of the stops on my campaign tour. Please buy my book. <laughs> well, so se- perfect segue. Um, you just wrote a book that's coming out um, on the second, right? Called Tacky. Oh. We are so thrilled to have you here to talk about it. So tacky, geez. Like when we think <laughs> about when you think about the word tacky and, and it, all of the connotations they have, the majority of them negative. I guess one of the questions that I have is, what was the impetus for writing this book? Like, why would you cover this? <laughs> why topic? would you do something like this? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that's a great question. I ask myself some variant on that question most days. I guess I feel like uh, tackiness as an institution doesn't get all that much attention. I think that, uh, and and I talk about this in my book, because as part of the quote unquote research that I did for it, I read a lot of Susan Sontag, particularly notes on camp. Yeah. And uh, the way she talks about camp is kind of similar to the way that I feel about tackiness. But I think with the the big difference that uh, a person who finds something enjoyable because it's campy is having a private, delightful experience of that thing far separate from the experience that the creator of it intended them to have. Like they found something in it that the creator didn't put there deliberately. And that's why it's fun. And I think with something tacky, you can't really have that same experience. You can't find some private, weird little thing to like about, you know, the music of Fred Durst. You either just like it or you do (laughs) not. And a lot of people around the time that stuff like Limp Bizkit, Creed, like boy bands, girl groups, all that stuff. When stuff like that was coming out, they sort of took the position that it wasn't only not to their taste, it wasn't worth consideration at all. It was too manufactured, mm-hmm. too shallow and and soulless is a word that I remember being thrown around a lot. And, and tacky, in short. It's like for uneducated people. Right. And so I want to give a lot of that stuff a second look because I I don't agree that there's nothing of value in these things that were decided to be valueless. And I mean, of course, they were very popular, but very poorly criticized a lot of them at the time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's... That's sort of the aspect that I want to address is like, why did so many people make it their business to hate this stuff? And what was my relationship with it, which is generally much more positive. And, you know, everything that I write about in this book is something that I really love on on some level. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I found myself, um, maybe it's because we're probably around the same age that I found myself just completely like nodding to myself and being like, Oh, mm-hmm. yep, yep, yep. Remember that? I remember that. <laughs> totally. And just the feelings that you capture in the book are just so great and so relatable. And I love this part from the intro, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, as far as I'm concerned, tackiness is joyfulness. To be proudly tacky, your aperture for the all too much feelings, angst, desire, joy must be all the way open. You've got to be so much more ready to feel everything than anyone probably wants to be. So along those lines, who is your favorite contemporary that embodies this mindset? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I watch a lot of Bravo. Yes. And, Tacky uh, Central. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's like, uh, I mean, it's hard to say just how self-aware stuff like, you know, Real Housewives, Below Deck, how self-aware any of that is when it comes to how over-the-top, like, glitzy, gilded, opulent everything is presented to be. I mean, essentially nouveau riche, right? Like, Bravo is the nouveau riche network. And I love it for that. I feel like uh, people with really good taste tend to be kind of boring, like boring to look at, boring to go to their house and you're not supposed to touch anything. Like it's, you you can't engage with a person who thinks too highly of themselves in that way. Like that that's, you can't party with that person. There's no party to be had there. Yeah, I can't party in a museum. <laughs> right, yeah, it's, it's quiet and you know, your footsteps echo, you're not supposed to touch stuff. It's, you know, and I love going to a museum, but 
I got to really be in my on my best behavior at a museum or like at a super rich guy's house or whatever. <laughs> Yessie, did you want to ask the next question? Uh-oh. Oh, I think they no. froze for a second. Ah! I think they're connect- They're in a hotel right now, so their connection's kind of messed up. Oh, my God. The number of these that I've recorded from like hotel rooms where the Wi-Fi was just not there. <laughs> not, not trying it. to yeah. help me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So more, uh, so let me, uh, sorry, let me like re- reset no. here. It is still, I have not had enough coffee today, so I am kind of. I've had none. Struggling. Oh no. So, like, are you just like mug right now is Kratom? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I read some of your tweets about Kratom and everyone I know that does Kratom is like, it's amazing. It tastes disgusting. And I'm like, it, yeah, it sounds interesting though. Is Kratom like actually like good for anxiety or? It's good for, I mean, the reason I take it, I have Crohn's disease and that comes with a lot of chronic pain, uh, mm-hmm, joint right. pain in particular. And Kratom is, it's essentially an opiate without the high. Like you, you take it and it numbs the pain, but you don't get high really. Yeah. Okay. You do get very nauseous. And I can't tell if that's the opiate part or just the fact that you're like drinking powdery sludge to feel better. So uh, talking about weird mouth feels. <laughs> Always. That's what I'm here for. So you mentioned that you have a pet hedgehog. That's really fucking cool. Uh, And a very unusual pet. What compelled you to get a hedgehog? (laughs) Oh, man, I loved that little hedgehog. He he was very old and he he passed away a few months ago. But uh, the reason that I got one, uh, I was on like Craigslist, like the pet section, because I my landlord was anti-pet, so I couldn't adopt a pet through the usual channels. And most of the people on the Craigslist pets section are real scumbag types. But every once in a while, you do find someone who like has a legitimate emergency situation where they got to not have a pet anymore in short right. order. And uh, I found this lady in Staten Island who was getting rid of her hedgehog uh, for I don't I don't remember why, actually, but I had to like go onto the Staten Island ferry and go out there and like meet her under a bridge and it was the sketchiest shit. She like, <laughs> we did a hedgehog deal and hedgehogs are actually illegal in New York. So uh, oh. I was like super anxious taking them around the Staten Island ferry cops on the way back. It was Is there, not can you have scene. them like grandfathered, grandfathered in or like, are there just like straight up no hedgehogs? No, it's, it's straight up illegal. It's, it's an old uh, Giuliani rule and like this exotic Fuck pet ordinance. He hates ferrets. Like there's... <laughs> There's this, it, the, the law covers hedgehogs and ferrets both. And there's this old, really funny radio show clip where one of the like callers into the show is like, Rudy Giuliani, why do you hate ferrets? And he just goes on this <laughs> rant about like, you shouldn't have a gross little weasel in your house and like a really the long Giuliani, rant. your wife yeah. has you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, yeah. that's, yep. <laughs> no, it's Burn, like, got him, solved it. rights people are really, um, really empathetic, are, um, they're really emphatic about it. So I like that someone called in and was just like, what the fuck is up with this? <laughs> yeah, it was, and like, he clearly has like personal beef with a ferret, like a ferret <laughs> fucked his wife or something. I, something <laughs> happened there. Nobody hates an animal that much. Oh my god. Yeah. It's just weird to lump in like hedgehogs and ferrets. Like it seems so, uh, cause there's, uh, in the exotic pet category, that could be so many things. Like right. chinchillas can be in there, and chinchillas right. are adorable. Why would I you feel get a chinchilla? Like 
hedgehogs were lumped in so that Giuliani wouldn't be speciesist. He was just like, what else can I throw in here so that I won't get attacked by the ferret lobby? <laughs> it, it was, I mean, it made it a real pain in the ass to like take him to the vet or whatever. There are exotic vets that will see them, but obviously not that many in New York because they're yeah. illegal. I love that guy's vet forever. Dr. Whatever your name was. I think I saw you like five <laughs> total times. I do not remember your name, but you did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> Um, Yessie, you had that one question you wanted to ask. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about the the uh, tech difficulties. Um, you are so good. So, thank you. So I wanted to talk, uh, going back to talking about lowbrow culture and kind of the the thematics of of what it means to like something tacky, especially because this comes up quite a bit in the book. You you reinforce the fact that so many people like these things. Like, you know, Creed didn't bomb like they were a very successful stadium filling band and so in in thinking about sort of a liberation through tackiness do you see any sort of like political sort of emergent politic in that do you kind of like see anything relating it relating it to how tackiness can inform your view on the world or yeah no i know what you mean and i mean i go back and forth on this because Mm -hmm. on the one hand there is a real snobbery in this attitude of like, I hate Creed because the unwashed masses right. you know, are so into them. That's a really stupid bullshit way to consume culture. Like that's absolutely that shouldn't even be a consideration. And of course, it does work out sometimes to be pretty classist. Like you don't hate Creed because you hate Creed. You hate Creed because it just makes you think of like guys in Florida and, you know, like strip clubs and Tampa and shit. And that Mm -hmm. you just don't like that stuff. It's about you. It's not about some guy's music. But then on the other hand, I think about mass culture now. And I I always come back to uh, Marvel movies in that regard, because when something is as popular as Creed was or as the Marvel movies are now, you do have to ask, like, what's behind that popularity? Because those movies are not getting made in a vacuum. There's massive amounts of money and, right. I mean, lobbying, essentially, that goes into all that screenwriting mm-hmm. and all that promo. And that isn't neutral. Like, that, that is something totally to be not. questioned and pushed back against. And the monoculture itself is something to be questioned and pushed back against. So I guess where I end up landing on it is... If you dislike something that's hugely popular because you distrust the mechanism by which it became popular, that makes sense. And lean into that distrust because we shouldn't trust that mechanism. Things become popular because they serve a greater interest. But if you dislike stuff because you just don't like the look of the guys who like it, that's... Shitty. Like, that's just, that's a shitty way to be. And I mean, Uh if nothing else, you will be happier if you stop being so fucking judgmental. It kind of reminds me of like being judgmental and snobby. And and I'll admit that I am a rehabilitated like hipster for lack of a better term. Like when I was younger, I was definitely an asshole about certain things, (laughs) certain music, especially. Um, But I I think about this, uh, this uh, point that Zizek used to make where he said that when we find enjoyment in something or when we when we do something um, and I'm fucking it up, I'm sure. But when we do something that we like or have fun doing, we are attempting to uh, experience the, the liberation or access, not so much liberation, but access that the bourgeoisie has. Right. So when we're when we're being snooty and like 
um, dismissive of things that are quote unquote tacky or, you know, quote unquote mainstream. I, I think it's kind of the same thing. We're trying to access that power level, but it's fake. It's not real. So get your head out of your ass and stop being a dick. <laughs> Right. It's all aesthetics. It's like mm -hmm. dueling aesthetics. And I don't even think it's possible to make the case that one aesthetic is better, like capital B better right. than another. That That's it's not even legible to me as an argument. Like you like one thing. This guy likes another. It's absolutely worth interrogating why you like it or don't like it. Mm -hmm. But the judgment call that's not a leap that you need to make. I feel like maybe this younger like generation, like this around the Zoomer level, is a little bit more accepting of people kind of switching up aesthetics and kind of being um, involved in more than just one scene. Whereas I think the generation that we all came from was a lot more preoccupied with staying in like one lane. Um, I, I remember when I was in high school, when I was in high school, uh, <laughs> when I was a youngster, um, I was... I, you know, I went through my like pop phase when I was younger and then I started listening to, you know, punk when I was like 12 or 13. And then I felt like I couldn't listen to pop or really anything else because I was into punk and wanted to look like a punk. So I felt like very pigeonholed for, a, you know, pretty much my whole high school career um, and high school experience. And it was like a secret kind of shame to like things that were really popular, especially, you know, like pop music and liking uh, certain uh, aesthetic, like the 2000s Y2K kind of uh, popular girl, low-waisted aesthetic, that kind of thing. And what do you think it is about uh, the conditions now that lend itself to people being more forgiving of each other across aesthetics? Uh, I mean, I think part of it is there really isn't much of a monoculture anymore. Like, the, it's... I think that the way that you and I probably felt a little guilty for, you know, we find one aesthetic that appeals to us and we go whole hog with it. And then this other stuff that doesn't mesh also appeals to us. It feels like a betrayal and we feel guilty about it. And I think that's sort of a vestige of this like Gen X mid nineties attitude of, you know, you, you can never sell out. You can't, you can't like pop. Right. If, if you're a DIY type, like the, the mm -hmm. never the twain shall meet. And, mm -hmm. uh, right. I think it makes sense as an attitude when what you're fighting against is a true monoculture and you've got this Sisyphean task of even getting your work listened to when you're relying on this underground network of like tape exchanges and basement shows and that sort of thing. But we're more connected to each other now. And for all that there is popular culture still, there's also a lot more culture that's readily accessible on just about every level. You don't have to know where the DIY venues are anymore, necessarily. You can find right. music any number of ways. You can find movies any number of ways. All you really need to have is the interest and the drive. And so I think that that leads to more experimentation. I can't imagine it even being a concern that, you know, oh, you're a punk in eighth grade, but you want to dress like a prep one day. Like that was a huge concern for me it was like punk versus prep. And it was very much a fight. And I don't know how much that fight still exists. I mean, I'm obviously not a teenager in high school right now, but it just it feels like it's time has passed. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I think the young, I think younger folks are just a little bit more accepting of, of people changing their minds about mm-hmm. or integrating, you know, more than one kind of aesthetic together and, and being more experimental and accepting of that e- experimental attitude. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like when we were younger, it was, it was far more rigid, especially for femme folks. Like being a young girl, I recall that, that rigidity and, and kind of the viciousness if you stepped out of, out of line. But I also something that really struck me was your uh, well, I, what, what I consider, and I'm, I'm sure you agree, oh, an ode to warm vanilla sugar uh, scent. God, that. So I was a warm vanilla sugar girl. Um, Damn straight. Hell yeah. And I, I haven't even really transitioned out of it. Like I just went to the more uh, mature philosophy sweet cream, which smells very similar, just not as intense. But one of the things that really struck me is the 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 equation between womanhood and and dessert. Like that was like that fucked me up. Like I was just like, whoa, like thinking about being available for consumption, being almost commoditized. Right. So I wanted to ask you about that. How do you view that level of object like being objective? Or, or consumed and, and sort of like, how does it how does it still play out in your life? And then how does it kind of rub against your personhood and autonomy? Yeah, I have a complicated relationship with uh, being objectified. I mean, for years, I was a stripper and, you sure. know, did all different varieties of sex work. And that as a career requires you to inhabit your own objectification, like from an outsider's perspective. You want to look at yourself and say, like, how can I make myself appealing? Not because I want to be appealing as a woman, but because I am selling a service. And, you know, like any salesperson anywhere, I want to trick out my stall with an eye to what's going to please the customer. And that kind of forces you into this creepy feeling double think of, you know, I look at myself in the mirror, I'm looking at myself with my own eyes. I'm also looking at myself through a 65-year-old man's eyes looking for defects. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just, I don't think I've ever lost that tendency to look at myself as if I'm looking for defects. It's, yeah, it's complicated. I've, I mean, I, I've made my money off of doing exactly that. And I've been very successful at it at points in my oh. life. And it's, you know, I, I wouldn't have survived without the benefits that I saw from being keenly able to objectify myself. Sure. But something I've noticed is once you show even the faintest willingness to objectify yourself, not even necessarily as a sex worker, but just, you know, a woman posting a selfie on the internet, Mm -hmm. that kind of looks like self-objectification in its way. And the moment you show a willingness to do that, there are people who will only ever again see you as an object. 100% an object like they look at you through that lens of knowing you've been willing to objectify yourself once under limited circumstances and they just go wide with it and you'll never escape it and I don't think any woman can escape it I genuinely don't think it's possible I think that the sorts of women who criticize other women for complaining about it they're deluded Mm -hmm. and I think that we are all objectified by outsiders at one point or another we all objectify ourselves at one point or another Mm -hmm. the answer isn't finding a way to dodge it. It's finding a way to incorporate it into your sense of self so that you can live with yourself on on the day-to-day basis. 
Yeah, absolutely. That really rings true for me, a current stripper who, you know, has to compartmentalize a lot when I go into work and I, you have to really thread the needle of, um, uh, what can I sell about my personality and look mm-hmm. and what do I have to suppress? Because a lot of, you know, uh, what people don't realize is, you know, we don't just go to work as sex workers and are just like, we, we don't get to be our complete authentic selves just because right. we're sex workers. And it's a, a wild atmosphere you work in or it's you know it's a party atmosphere it's like no you, there's still a level of if you want to make money anyway there's still a level of professionalism you have to attain and part of that professionalism is determining which of my features do I have to play up? Which of my features do I need to tone down? What mm-hmm. parts of my personality are going to be marketable? And what parts of my personality I absolutely cannot share with anybody else? Right, so, And what right. parts of my politics I can't share with anyone else, which is probably the most difficult thing in mm-hmm. this day and age is because as anyone that's a sex worker knows, you just get inundated with people's political opinions, whether you like it or not. And mm. even when you're, even when you're actively avoiding it, something about, something about being in a strip club and, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure like other, uh, other aspects of sex work are like this too, but it really opens the floodgates for people's awful opinions about the world. And you are just kind of like forced to, uh, sit there and kind of take it. And, you know, there, there is like complicated balancing act in like being in that space where you have to be like, well, these are my values and this is my wallet. <laughs> and right. I have to figure out how this is going to work. Yeah. It, I mean, that every day I went into work, I'd have to steal myself for exactly that dynamic because like, and I will say I genuinely liked many of my regulars. Like it's, I wasn't just seething with rage 24 hours a day when I was a stripper, but there was this real like, drunk uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner vibe to 90% of the dudes there just spewing nonsense. And it's not like Thanksgiving dinner where you can just roll your eyes and be like, oh, fuck the drunk uncle. You have to engage (laughs) and you have to be nice and you have to make them want to come back and give you more money. It's Mm -hmm. really tiring. Yeah, absolutely. Just pivoting back to a little bit to um, the book, there was a chapter called You Want to Be on Top, which is about you and uh, your best friend Trixie and uh, watching America's Next Top Model after school. You talked about how you and Trixie kind of convinced yourselves that a guy you were doing coke with one night was actually a vampire. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, I still uh, believe it to this day. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and you like firmly believe this. And uh, this theory is part of what you call a shared mythology as friends. And I was wondering, is a shared mythology necessary for long lasting friendships? And why do you think femme friendships in particular are so prone to superstitious and like pop spirituality, like ghosts, vampires and like astrology? Yeah, I mean, part of it, I'm sure is that exactly that stuff is relentlessly marketed to women. <laughs> like it's, it's not dudes who get, you know, Instagram ads for custom tarot decks. That's right, almost right. not happening. It's me and my friends. And while I don't necessarily believe that the supernatural specifically has to play its role in long lasting friendships between femme folks, I do think that there's this impossible to delineate magic that is always in place in those really long-lasting friendships. And I think, and this is going to sound, I think, probably a little cheesy, a little cliched, but I 
don't think that means it's wrong. I do think women tend to more readily access that empathy that's required to have that almost psychic feeling connection with a best friend. Because like, it's, you know, she and I finish each other's sentences to this day after like 15 years and all, all kinds of stuff like that, like weird stuff, wearing the same outfit without coordinating it, just stuff that speaks to a thread between our brains that I just think women have an easier time building. I don't think that it's never present between two men or between a woman and a man or any number of other combinations of people that can exist. But I think that it's just more available to women. And that makes me a little sad for men. And then I remember that they own everything. So I stop (laughs) wasting my time feeling sorry for them. But I just, we have that, we, we just have more of an ability to be friends even. Have you ever hung out with like two dude best friends? They don't converse. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They do stuff Mas- together, but they don't yeah. really talk. Yeah. And like, if you ask, like, like, very repressive, it, like, you know, like... I think so. Yeah. It's, I mean, not to, like, hit the nail on the head, but, like, it is toxic. Like, it is very much, <laughs> you know, isolating. I mean, if I'm, like, if I'm talking to a dude friend of mine and I know that he just recently hung out with, like, his best friend, you know, what'd you guys do together? Uh, watch the game. And I understand that I, as an outsider, am not entitled to like the full dossier of what my friends are doing with each other when I'm not there. But it's just, you aren't left with the sense that there's a lot of that deeper level stuff going on on a regular basis. You know, like men probably rely on each other in times of crisis I'm sure they're there for each other. I'm sure they're more than capable of supporting each other, but they just aren't raised exercising those muscles the same way. And we exercise them all the time. Right. Yeah. I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Just going off my own anecdotal evidence of having been friends with a lot of guys like in my 20s and seeing, you know, I'd be friends with like two guys and then you know, one of them would come to me and tell me all their problems and I would go to the other one thinking, well, you know this person, so you know what's up. And they're like, well, I don't know anything. Wait, what's yeah. going on? And I'm it's like, always they don't the first one to hear that. about a breakup. I'm always the first one to hear that like someone's mom is sick. And I'm happy to have those conversations with my friends, of course. But it's just consistently surprising when a dude that I might not even feel like I know that well looks at me as a prefab confidant. Like, I don't even, it's not really about the skills that I have or the advice I can offer. It's that I'm a woman who is neutral and there. Yeah, it feels almost like you are kind of like a prop in their life. In a sense, I, I got that from a lot of my male like friendships in my twenties. Was I just felt like I was kind of there as like a witness to their life, and even when I had advice to give or insight to offer, it was more like I was just someone to vent at until they figured it out on their own. Yeah, and they they that's don't a take very advice. Alienating feeling. It's yeah. totally alienating. I'm I'm sorry to cut you off. I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, um, I, I don't want to pretend that like I get nothing out of being friends with dudes. Some of my closest friends are men who are full people, of course, mm, like right. able to empathize and sympathize and think things through. But there is a real expectation that I, as a woman, am more available for that than 
you know, an equally close male friend. And I'm not going to pretend I'm unavailable to be a friend to my friends. Mm. But it does begin to get frustrating when it's, you know, it's a dude that I'm close with. And he thinks that closeness means it's my job to remind him to call his mother or something. (laughs) You know, stuff like that. It's friendship as secretary. Mm, Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. and And it's interesting to see which relationships with men kind of survive and actually do evolve into something deeper and which ones kind of like fall to the wayside because you know as as you get older you have less time for these kind of surface level interactions and surface level relationships and i feel like if the if those psychic barriers don't come down at some point you have you're kind of resigned to having a surface level relationship with someone um or an exasperating kind of uh situation where you're just like well i'm friends with this person but they're you know, they're difficult. And I'm not really, you know, I'm not really getting that deeper sense, like, you know, I would with a femme person that I've known for exactly the same amount of time. And it's, it's really interesting how uh, femme people are just conditioned to kind of like bring those psychic barriers down around each other a lot quicker than men. And it it makes me really sad for men. But then again, uh, you know, we got to worry about ourselves at some point. It kind of reminds me of like Federici, you know, how Federici talks a lot about the invisible labor that women and feminized people do all the time. Like, and it's just like you said, Rara, we're conditioned because from the jump, we're positioned to do that invisible labor of caring, of uh, emoting, of relating. And so then we become avatars for that throughout the rest of our lives for other women, which is cool because you bond, but for, for men too, like, you know, we just reproduce that over and over again. Yeah, I think it it becomes, I mean, Lord knows the phrase emotional labor is worn the fuck out. And I a little bit like never want to hear it again. <laughs> it's just, it's gotten so far away from its original useful context. But mm-hmm. I do think that when it comes to the the reproductive labor that women mm-hmm. are much mm-hmm. more encouraged to do than men are, like not only is it unpaid and draining, but over time it becomes frustrating. It does become frustrating to be performing these draining acts of spiritual motherhood for mm-hmm. various Absolutely. dudes who don't want to take care of themselves or are incapable probably of really taking care of themselves on the one hand i don't want to not help but i i have to take care of myself and who's going to take care of me absolutely yeah um yeah and, and it sucks because again that conditioning of like well i feel selfish for not wanting to help but at the same time it's like self-preservation baby like we gotta <laughs> we gotta prioritize here you know and you can only give so someone so much time and energy before you have to kind of resign yourself to um either having a, a, a certain kind of relationship dynamic or saying like this is no longer working for me and i kind of have to peace out you know and i think it's really sad because i've had very strong uh like male female friendships with people before where that relationship did progress and did get better but i've had uh like three times as many just kind of collapse under this like toxic masculinity that we talk about um because those psychic barriers that they have put in place like that 
you know, society has conditioned them to put in place. They just cannot seem to get over it. And it's, there's no easy answer for it, but I guess you just kind of have to uh, weigh for yourself, you know, do I have the time and energy for this? Uh, is it hurting me? Is it helping me? It sucks to have to make that calculus in your head, that friendship calculus. But at the end of the day, like, we are ultimately kind of responsible for how we, you know, interact with the world and interact with women and men. So and everybody in between. So yeah, I, did, did anyone have any other thoughts about that before I jump into something like way more uh, irreverent? <laughs> Girls rule, <did>. boys drool. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we love misandry. No, uh, let's not. Um, so this is my lighthearted question regarding this. So um, I got really excited when there was a chapter about America's Next Top Model because um, I, I was, I guess when I, that came out, yeah, I was, I think in like middle schoolish, high school level. And that was around the time that I was like really trying to be like, you know, alternative and trying to go for that aesthetic. So the only people I really discussed America's Next Top Model with were like my mom, who I would watch it with every week. And so she was the only person I would talk to about it. And I never really had that like camaraderie through uh, trash television uh, with any of my girlfriends growing up. So I never got to like discuss who my favorite characters were, contestants were, what my favorite photo shoots were. So now I get to discuss it. So what is your all time favorite contestant and favorite photo shoot? Oh, man. That's a good question. That is a great question. And I, I have someone in mind, and I cannot remember her name. She was, I, I think, the, the cycle two or three winner. She had, like, big, okay. dark eyes, and they, they made her get a real short haircut during the makeover episode, which, you know, some girls cry, some are excited about it, and she was excited about it, and I liked that. And uh, she had this... Fuck, what was, was it, her It wasn't shoot? Elise, was it? No, not Elise. I no. didn't like Elise. Was, <laughs> yeah, Elise uh, was like cycle one, I think. Elise was kind of a bitch. I'm just going to cover it because oh, I've recently rewatched cycle one and she all she's pretentious doing, as fuck. So pretentious. She will not shut the fuck up about atheism. She's like that one guy oh at the party. God. Oh my God. Anyway, yeah. I don't remember this bitch's name, but she looked great and <laughs> I hope she's having a nice life. <laughs> <laughs> Yessie, do you remember any of your favorite America's Next Top Model moments? I stopped watching it like after cycle three, just because like, like I said, I became an asshole. So um, <laughs> yeah, I became a total asshole. And I was like, this is not cool. None of my friends like this. So it's I really don't remember. And I, I regret it because now it's like, you know, such a such a deep, it's deeply embedded within the cultural lexicon. Of so many women that I like and know, and I'm just like, I like missed out on that because I was too busy like sewing my jeans tighter so that I would be more hipster. Like that's awful. <laughs> Did you get into them? Oh I could never God. even get into my regular skinny jeans half the time. Sometimes, okay, I, just, I, I will tell you once I did sew them on with dental floss while they were on my body. Like, oh my god, bad time, bad time. <laughs> God, I had a vivid memory of sewing my boyfriend's skinny jeans on while they were on his body. So they oh would be as God. tight as possible. <laughs> how did he? Okay, how do you get out when that? Do you just rip the stitches off? Um, so he put them on. So I was actually making his regular skinny jeans into even tighter skinny jeans. And I had him, I had him put them on inside out and like cinched the jeans and I just like sewed it to his body. And then I like left a little bit of room at the ankle so they would like stretch and he could take his feet out, but they were very difficult to get off. And (laughs) 
that wasn't even like me at, in like high school. I was like 19 when this happened. So there was no excuse for me to be doing this. <laughs> Skinny jeans were still a big thing when, when we were 19-ish. I mean, obviously I'm 19 yeah. now, but. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Clearly. Um, I, I myself am 18, so yeah. uh, I time traveled. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Um, Welcome. Yeah. I just had my age um, on the yeah. last episode, so I can't even, I can't even do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit i almost fell out of my chair jesus <laughs> yeah i'd say like oh, okay my my i just remember um because i was, was doing kind of a rewatch of america's next top model um last mm-hmm. year and boy did they do blackface a lot on that show oh my oh, god i do time, remember dude. that deal with yeah. that Twice and like they very creative it. forms of blackface that like nobody was asking <laughs> for they dressed white models up like black women oh and god. like asian women latina women constantly yeah. and they had black and latina models every time yeah. and nobody and what what kills me is like the um the failure on every level of production for that to even become a thing because they had to mm-hmm. get every single i mean the contestants themselves were like completely desperate to be you know accepted in this world so it, you can almost understand that mindset but it's like in order for blackface to happen twice on that show they had to have like the producers agree the stylists agree the makeup artists agree and basically everyone down the line to the models uh, just be like okay yeah we're doing this um not only are we gonna do it we're gonna do it twice it like was kind (laughs) of a golden age for blackface around that time it was wild how much blackface was just everywhere everywhere Yeah. yeah like tyra did and 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 on the Tyra show, which I have been like watching clips of on YouTube, um, she also does like a form of blackface on her herself, where she tries to uh, she does this thing where um, this is the episode where she's like talking about the dangers of stripping, and she has right. a stripper on, and she's like interviewing the stripper and being like, "Yeah, but isn't it like degrading? Isn't it awful?" And mm-hmm. bless this she's fucking like, lady, it's fine. <laughs> she's like, "It's fine. I make good money, and I like my job." And she's like basically trying to get her to be like yeah but aren't you traumatized isn't it awful so tyra does this whole like undercover thing which is like oh god a, she does this multiple times on the show like yeah. she, she like loves cosplaying. putting on a little costume that's like the only yeah. reason she had that show i think yeah agree, like she loved cosplaying the cosplaying as overweight like unfortunate people one, yeah yeah she loved the fat suit i think i yeah. feel like she's worn a fat suit more than once I think so. (laughs) I don't understand. Like, she loves to go undercover, and then all that ever happens is like she goes to the strip club wearing blacker blackface and, you know, stripper outfit, and everyone's like, okay, here's a stripper. And then she couldn't even do it. She's not even good at it. She's like, I can't can't even do this right now. I can't. She like doesn't even get on stage. She's like, I can't. I can't even pretend to do this. And then uh, it's fine. Are you there, bitch? It's very normal. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, this is not even like a really wild club she's walking into like and it was she was just so taken aback by this like, i can't i can't it's like all right God, I can't girl, like, literally can't yeah, yeah i think she yeah. you don't have the skill set dance. yeah exactly it's like, like yeah it is hard being naked in front of other people on america's next top model and she, it, it never quite looked right to me yeah she got like progressively more and i don't know like if this is just like half characterization and just half her like losing her mind because she got richer and richer and more powerful. But she just like got progressively like more um, out of control with her body movements to like the point where you're like, is there something physically wrong? (laughs) Like, is there something physically going on 
here because I can't tell anymore uh, based on the way she's moving and talking. That was um, always my favorite part of the show is when they would be judging and then Tyra, there would come a time when Tyra would be like, you know, you're going like this, but you need to be going like this and just do like 30 <laughs> movements all in a row. And it just looked like shit. It was like, how yeah. is a photographer even supposed to take a picture of all the stuff you just did? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So let me just reframe here. Yessie, did you want to ask a question, by the way? I feel like I've been talking a lot. No, no, you're good. I'm, I'm kind of like worried about my technology if i ask a question and i'll just dip out um, <laughs> i'm sorry yeah, yeah. No, no 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 it's all good if we had done this on thursday it would be normal but no, no this, these I mean, are, this is the joys normal. of doing podcasting in this country you know yeah. fuck infrastructure it's, like yeah who cares let's we'll do it live <laughs> we'll do it live fam. uh um, no, it's so so Rob's at my house right now and i'm on the road and so it's just like <laughs> it's like freaky friday but hot yeah, yeah. that sounds really <laughs> sexy <laughs> being on the road and having bad wi-fi <laughs> yeah yeah so we we talked a lot about tackiness because this is what your book is about um but i was curious what tacky clothing item or accessory are you most proud of uh, I wear my little nameplate necklace that says bitch on it pretty much every day. I'm like kind of surprised with myself. I'm not wearing it right now. And I am presently wearing a uh, Juicy Couture tracksuit. Ooh. Oh, hell yeah. Circa like 2004, 2005. It's very comfortable. I always walk my dog in it. And recently I learned that, you know, there's a corner store by me with all the old guys who hang out in front of it, like every corner store. And they call me pink tracksuit girl. And oh I find God, that yes. very cute. <laughs> you have a signature look now. Yeah, I'm like a fun little neighborhood figure in my pink <laughs> tracksuit. Um, what do you think it is going to be like your tacky evolution as you get older? Because like what I've always loved about tacky women is it's like the older we get, the the more insane we get with our with our looks and our outfits. Like what do you envision yourself looking like in about like 20 years? Uh, I have some precedent to go on because I, I had a grandma and she was, she was my dad's mother. She was like this elderly Jewish lady with just dog shit taste. All of her jewelry was so huge, like to the point that it would weigh her arm down a little bit to wear a bracelet and stuff like that. And she had like a long cigarette holder and a cigarette case that I have now and all these fur coats that I don't even know what animal most of them are. And I feel like that's going to be about where I'm at is just like the elderly Jewish lady who can kind of speak Yiddish and wears so much jewelry, it's hard to move around. I love that. <laughs> I envision myself in like really big blousey fabrics you know, with like some really big prints on, just like taking mm. up as much space oh, as possible, good. you know. With the caftan the model. Oh my God, that yes. Was, that was yeah. kind of my vibe too. I always thought I would go like full Berkeley mom though with it, like <laughs> you know, jewelry that came from Guatemala and like Birkenstocks all the time. But now that I'm in my 30s, I'm kind of like, what if I just, when I turn, you know, 50, I just start dressing like a 19-year-old skater? I think that mm. might be good. Just like uh, fisherman bees and big shirts and uh, chore jackets and things like that. Yeah. Kind of like Eileen Miles. Eileen Miles has a. Oh, yeah. That's a good model. model. Yeah. 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 I think it's like a regional thing, too. So I think it's regionally wherever I end up is going to influence my style a lot. Like if I end up in the north, I'm definitely going to be 
big turtlenecks, but like neon turtlenecks, big glasses, like big hats. But I think if I'm going to be like in a tropical setting, big, you know, blousy caftans, basically just something really loud and very like, oh, what's our neighbor wearing today? She's always so wacky. And I kind of just like love the idea of being like a decoration in somebody's life. Like kind of that's kind of like peripheral to mine. Yeah, you're like the flamingo lawn decoration for all your neighbors. Exactly, exactly. Rax, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I, the conversation was great. Um, let's let's plug your book. Let's plug you. Uh, when is your book out? What's its name? Where can people find it? And where can people find you? Yeah, uh, my book is called Tacky, Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer. It comes out November 2nd. You should buy it. And then you should also buy a bunch for everybody that you know. And uh, if you don't feel like doing that, then A, fuck you. But B, <laughs> you can also listen to my podcast, Low Culture Boil, where we talk about trash culture also, because I'm a one trick pony. Or uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rax King is Dead. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and y'all don't forget to subscribe to the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash hotgirlagenda. Uh, We will be releasing some more bonus content and doing all sorts of fun stuff in the future. So get on it. All right. Thank you, Rex, so much. And we'll see you next time on Hot Girl Agenda. Bye-bye. Bye.